a couple enters a jewelry store to pick out the perfect diamond for an engagement ring. The jeweler pulls out a black satin cloth and places it on the counter. He takes a diamond out of the case and puts it against that pitch black background. Why? Because the diamond's brilliance is best displayed against the dark backdrop. This morning we want to take the most beautiful, brilliant day in human history and lay it on top of the black backdrop of the day we call Good Friday. I want us to take the vantage point of Jesus' followers and feel what they must have felt as Jesus was taken from the cross and his tomb was sealed. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today. Help us to understand the, what transpired on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Lord, we've heard these stories, these events over and over. May they never, ever get old to us. May our hearts never be cauterized to the beauty and the power of the gospel. Rather, every time we hear it, may we be drawn deeper and deeper into your love, grasping more fully what you've done for us and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We begin at the gathering of the disciples in the upper room, and John wrote, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain as to whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of him who he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And it was night. Throughout John's gospel, he used physical night and physical darkness to symbolize spiritual darkness. In his first chapter, we read, In him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Only on that day, it appeared the darkness had overcome the light. As Judas, moved by Satan, left that room, spiritual darkness covered Jerusalem. Judas was one of the twelve, an intimate friend of Jesus. But Judas's heart had turned black. He betrayed Jesus with the most endearing mark of love, a kiss. 
But he wasn't the only disciple who turned on Jesus. Jesus had warned Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. And so he did. Oh, Peter spoke boldly, promising he would die with Jesus. He seemed courageous in the garden against the soldiers when he pulled out his sword. And even after that, he followed Jesus when the soldiers had taken him away. But then, when a servant girl asked him if he knew Jesus, his courage failed. He denied knowing Jesus. Asked again and again, he he pledged and swore, even called a curse upon himself if he lied and still said, I do not know him. Peter was emotionally destroyed when he heard the cock crow. He was a failure who deserved to be disqualified from ever being used by God. The other disciples proved themselves as failures as well as they were silenced and they fled into the night. Jesus had entrusted his entire ministry into the hands of 12 men. They were the ones who were to proclaim the message of Christ, the kingdom of God, and Jesus as king. They were the ones who were to pass Jesus' teaching to others so that his words would go from one generation to another. Because of their silence in the face of threats, it was clear that the message of life and hope would die alongside Jesus. Mary, his mother, her sister, and Mary Magdalene bravely followed the procession up Calvary. It's shocking enough to bear the death of a child before his time. But what Mary experienced was horrifying. To see him so humiliated, beaten beyond recognition, and nailed to a cross, Certainly, she and the others would carry their grief and their sorrow to their grave. Those closest to Jesus, those with integrity, goodness, and faith, lost everything as darkness shrouded the land. Those who perpetrated evil, they were the victors. The hypocritical religious leaders who reveled in their lofty status, who were roadblocks to the kingdom of God, the whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, they won the day. They brought liars to testify against Jesus. They manipulated Pontius Pilate. They demanded the death penalty for Jesus. They incited the crowd to cry out, crucify him. They declared victory at the foot of the cross. They mocked him and said, Oh, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The other bystanders taunted him as well using Jesus' words against him. Even the criminals crucified alongside him reviled him. 
the challenge was set to God. If this is your son, you will rescue him. But heaven was silent. God left Jesus on the cross to suffer a horrific, ignominious death. The supernatural darkness that covered the land was surely a sign of God's judgment and displeasure with Jesus. Was not the cross the real test of whether Jesus' claims and teachings were true? Some may have wished that Jesus was all that he claimed to be. They may have thought for a moment that he spoke with such great authority, but he was proven to be a charlatan. God abandoned the one who called himself the Son of God. Jesus was thoroughly defeated as his lifeless body was pulled from the cross, wrapped in cloths, and laid in a cold, dark tomb. His anguish declared that he did not belong to God. His very words from the cross revealed his true spiritual condition. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words told us clearly that God was not with him. When he whispered, I thirst, he wasn't only saying he was physically thirsty, he was spiritually thirsty, he was without spiritual life, abandoned by the Spirit of God. And when he said the words, it is finished, it sounded as though he had resigned himself to death and the end of everything. He was silenced, and his ministry was forever to be buried with him. Satan was victorious. He had never been able to dissuade Jesus from God's path, so the devil found another way. He frightened the disciples that they would run away, went into one to betray him. He compelled the religious rulers to demand Jesus' death sentence. He drew out the worst inclinations of the soldiers who brutalized Jesus physically and emotionally. He silenced Jesus forever. Then Satan sat on the throne that Jesus deserved. Satan ruled over the darkest day in human history, the day that the creature crucified the Creator. Or so it seemed when the stone was rolled over Jesus' tomb.
Oh, to see my name, oh, to see 
kid, I remember driving around with my dad and listening to the radio and hearing a show hosted by a guy named Paul Harvey. And he would tell the story of a famous or historical person without revealing their name until the very end, leaving you to wonder the whole time who he might be talking about. The show was designed to make you curious and to make you wonder and ask how it would all turn out. And at the end, after revealing the person's name, the person whose story he had just told, he would always close his broadcast by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. Because it wasn't until the end, the very end, when you had all the information that the rest of the story made everything come together. It made all of the story that you had just heard coalesce in such a way that everything suddenly made sense. That, in a sense, is what we celebrate every Resurrection Sunday. Because up to that point in history, everything seemed to be going in one direction. And suddenly, in a moment, our understanding of everything that had come before it changed. As Bruce has already discussed this morning, literally every witness came away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Good Friday with one perspective. This man who had collected quite a following and created a significant disruption to life as usual in this quiet corner of the Roman Empire had been silenced. More than silenced, he had been crushed. The bystanders had mocked and derided him, mashing a crown of thorns onto the head of this man who had been called the king of the Jews. The Roman soldiers confirmed him dead by piercing his side with a spear. The Roman politicians double-checked that he was dead by calling soldiers to testify to it. The disciples had fled, denied that they knew him, and distanced themselves from any association that they had with him out of fear for their own safety. Jesus' mother mourned the loss of her son, and the sky itself had gone dark, and it seemed that even the one who had said twice already in the book of Matthew, this is my son who I love, had turned away from him. And in laying him in a tomb, Jesus' claims of God's kingdom coming in him were laid to rest. The light of the world slain by darkness. And in utter hopelessness, the world was left with questions unanswered and hope unfulfilled. And in silence, those who followed Jesus waited and mourned and wondered how things could have possibly gone so wrong. It's a feeling I think that we are not unfamiliar with. We know what it's like to look all around us and wonder what good purpose God could possibly have in store in all of this. Even right now, as we weather the storm of a global pandemic with more questions than answers about what the coming days and months will hold, we feel some of the same anxiety and grief that humanity knows all too well, and which Jesus' followers must have felt on the day that he was laid in a tomb. It's the feeling of being adrift, while things that happen all around us that we cannot make sense of. For everyone watching who had seen Jesus' arrest and his abuse, and the crucifixion, and death, and burial of this man, he was utterly defeated. For those who loved him, this was a feeling of despair and utter hopelessness that Jesus' death represented. And even though he had warned them that it was coming, he told his disciples multiple times that he would be delivered up to die. But even when he put it that clearly, and he was that blunt with them, they either didn't understand or simply refused to accept that such a thing would happen to Jesus. And now that it had, they were left without answers, grieving not only the loss of their teacher, 
but also the loss of the hope for God's kingdom that he represented. They had no idea how God would make something good out of this. And so we read in Matthew 28, 1, that Mary, Jesus' mother, and Mary Magdalene went to see Jesus' tomb. They were going to mourn the same way that we might by visiting a gravestone in a cemetery. These women have been there to see all of the tragic events that have transpired over the last few days. Matthew makes a specific point of mentioning their presence leading up to this particular morning. In chapter 27, verse 56, he notes that they witnessed Jesus' death. And in chapter 27, verse 61, he mentions that they saw him firsthand laid in a tomb and saw that tomb sealed with a massive stone. And now they have come to mourn. But what they see when they arrive is not what they expected. Instead, with an earthquake and a blinding light, a heavenly figure opens the tomb and proclaims to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. The tomb is empty. They were invited to look inside and see for themselves, and they do, that everything that they've witnessed over the last few days is beginning to unravel. Every heartbreaking, hope-stealing thing that they've seen begins to come undone. Now, if you've been hanging around Westgate Church for very long, you may have heard someone here reference uh, the Lord of the Rings from time to time. And as we consider this, this moment when these women behold the empty tomb, I can't think of a better illustration of what they must have felt than a moment from the very end of that famous story. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, then you're familiar with one of the most beloved characters in the story, this wizard named Gandalf. Now, he's the leader of this team of heroes that set out in the very beginning to save the world by making a perilous journey to destroy an evil force that had spread throughout the whole world. But during their journey, Gandalf falls to his apparent death while defending the rest of the heroes. But the team keeps going, moving toward their goal and mourning the loss of their friend who they think is dead. And by the end, a couple of the characters, Sam and Frodo, manage to complete the journey and destroy the evil force. And the effects of that evil begin to be unraveled, and the beauty of nature begins to return. And at the very, very end of the story, when Sam sees Gandalf and realizes that he is alive again, he is both amazed and confused. And he says, as he remembers that they've been through such tremendous suffering and difficulty, and he remembers that victory has now been won and they are reunited, that his friend who was dead is alive again, he cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What is happening in the world? Jesus' mother and Mary Magdalene look into this tomb, the tomb that held their Savior, that they had buried their own hopes in, and it is empty. They had seen the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus with their own eyes. Matthew was careful to point out to us. They had seen the massive stone seal that was set in front of the tomb. And now, seeing its emptiness, they can hardly believe it. The saddest, darkest moment of their lives when the sun itself was literally darkened from the midday sky, has been turned upside down, and everything sad is beginning to come untrue. And as Matthew pointed out in verse 1, it is dawn. 
It's a subtle but significant signal that darkness is no longer draped over the land. These women can hardly believe it. So when the angel tells them to go to Galilee where they would find the risen Savior for themselves, it says in verse 8 that they left in haste with fear and great joy. What a combination of emotions that is. They dash from the tombs, their minds racing, wondering if it could really be true. Elsewhere in this gospel, Matthew has recorded people's fearful responses to things that they don't understand. Back in chapter 17, Jesus took a couple of disciples with him to a mountaintop where we read that he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light, and a voice, the voice of God, boomed around them saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. It's an incredible moment when the divinity of Jesus is briefly revealed in such an overwhelming way that the disciples who were with him literally fell on their faces and were terrified. They have glimpsed Jesus' glory, his authority, and his divine nature. And all at once they realize that Jesus is so much more than what they thought before. He holds the power over creation itself, over their lives, and his presence overwhelms them. And now, on Resurrection Sunday, these two women have glimpsed something similar. Jesus has overturned death itself. His power and his majesty are unrivaled, and these women have glimpsed it. And their response is similar. They feel a holy fear, the same holy fear that the disciples felt when they began to understand Jesus' true nature. But their fear is accompanied by something else. They run to meet him with fear and great joy. Fear because they were running to meet the one who commands life and death, but with great joy because they know that the one with such authority is for them, that he loves them. The great power that they've glimpsed will be used for their good. The one who has authority over death is their deliverer, who has proven that no power in heaven or on earth can stand in the way of his mission of salvation. In conquering death, Jesus proves what he has promised will all come to pass, and that all who know him can find joy in that. The women at the tomb have joy because where there was death, there is now life. Where there was hopelessness, they have hope again. And where it seemed as though darkness had won, dawn has broken through. Where on the cross Jesus seemed defeated, he was instead finishing the work of salvation for all who trust in him. Jesus, alive again, is victorious over death and darkness. And with him, God's kingdom is established for all of his people. It was the moment when the pitch black darkness of Good Friday became the backdrop for the radiance of God's glory to shine in all of its brilliance. When his love and mercy and faithfulness toward a wayward people would be proven and accomplished once and for all time. A few weeks later, when the apostles took up their charge to establish and lead the church, Peter stood to proclaim what would be the first sermon given by a Christ follower. And he looked back on the crucifixion, remembering it and declaring it to all who were there to listen. And he said, Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men had driven the nails, compelled by a frenzied mob that demanded Jesus' execution. They wanted him silenced. They wanted his movement stamped out. They wanted to defeat him. But everything that happened served to accomplish God's sovereign plans and the moment toward which all of history had been building. What seemed like Jesus' defeat was Jesus' victory, and in him, death itself was put to death. It is the hope of Resurrection Sunday for all who look to him for forgiveness and hope. As Peter says at the end of his sermon, when the crowd asked him what they should do, he replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and everyone who are, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The promise is for everyone who God calls to himself, and that is the root and the foundation of our joy this Easter Sunday. God's promise of hope is for us. Easter is the day we celebrate that God has begun to put right all that is broken, to make all sad things come untrue. Having finished the work of paying for the cost of our freedom, he begins the work of unraveling the effects of our sin and rebellion. It is the promise of hope for us amid all the struggles that we face. And beholding him, we are right to have a reverent fear, an awe of the one that death could not keep in his grip. Yet our fear, our fear is balanced with joy in knowing that this Savior came and died according to the sovereign plan, God's sovereign plan, to love you and me through what appeared to be utter defeat. Jesus turns all of our sadness on its head and makes joy where there was once heartbreak. And as we approach him this Easter, we do so with fear and great joy, just as the witnesses of the resurrection. And along with them, we come to Jesus with praise. When the two Marys in, that, we were, that we read about in Matthew 28 were sent by the angel to look for Jesus, it was actually Jesus who came to them. Matthew records that Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. <laughs> he says hello to them and they fall at his feet. Because what else could they have done? They are standing before the one who has conquered death itself. Worship is the right response to the one who conquers death and gives us new lives in him. Because what else could we do when he comes to find us? There is nothing else we have to offer and nothing else that appropriately responds to his glory. This morning, if you are hearing and thinking about these things for the first time, maybe it's because Jesus has come to find you. He is the one who conquers death, whose sheer power and glory are truly frightful apart from his love, but who has proven his love for you already. Maybe he has come to find you this morning. And if he has... I hope that your only reply to him is worship. A declaration that apart from him, we are all lost in hopelessness, but with him, our suffering is redeemed and our hope is made secure, and that he is our truest 
joy. May Jesus come to meet you today with divine power and sacrificial love for you, and let us come to him in worship. We know the rest of the story. Having seen the empty tomb, we realize that God has turned his suffering into our good and his glory. Let us join together the people of God, unified under Christ for the sake of God's glory and renown. And as we pray and sing to the one who turns the blackest night into our dawn of indestructible joy. Let's pray together. God, we are humbled to be in your presence. Humbled because we have beheld your glory in your word this morning. We know that you conquer death. That you alone are able to make all sad things come untrue, and we depend on you to make it so. Our only response, the only thing we have to offer you today is our hearts in worship. And so we fall at your feet this Resurrection Sunday. We fall at your feet, the one who has power over death itself and who has given us new life. We fall at your feet with praise on our lips, love for you in our hearts, and a desire to know you more every day. We are your people, and you are our God. We come before you in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.